have uh, one of the greatest founders that's running a remote company, Sid, he's running a company called GitLab. I think potentially one of the biggest remote companies of all time, potentially. And uh, uh, so maybe Sid, do you want to give us a little introduction? I know this is going out on your uh, live stream, but uh, it's also going to be syndicated in other places. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for your interest. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to talk with you. And uh, yeah, GitLab is a complete uh, DevOps platform delivered as a single application. It's uh, And the company is all remote. We don't have any uh, uh, places where people uh, are co-located. And it's uh, 1,300 people at the company and thousands of people who have contributed to the open source project. And this is across all time zones? Yeah, we have people in 60, not all time zones, but we have people in 65 countries. Wow. Well, um, to zoom out a little, what we're trying to do with this series is you know, everyone is now remote. You know, Before, all these, all, all these CEOs like myself were thinking, and remote sounds really interesting. Maybe they had a hybrid model, and maybe they had some engineers across the country, but maybe they had headquarters in San Francisco. And now we are all 100% remote. And I suspect a lot of these CEOs are secretly kind of freak, freaking out internally. There's a lot of fear, which being CEOs, they tend not to demonstrate. They tend to put, put on a uh, stiff upper lip, as we say in England. But there's a lot of fear because we have not run remote companies before. We don't know how to. Um, and we're searching around for answers. And this is what the series is all about. It's a mini series with some of the best remote founders to try and learn from them. And uh, Matt, I wonder if you have anything else to add? Yeah, I think I can take that one step further. So I coach um, a lot of CEOs of, of tech scaling tech companies, and they have come to me and I said, you know, I always ask, how can I be more effective and more um, valuable to you? And, and it's pretty universal. They've all said, Matt, we need you to go out and become the expert in how to run a remote company because that's what we need most right now. So that's really that. And, and Alex, you know, also feels that need. That's what inspired this. So we're talking to the CEOs of the intentionally remote companies, not the accidentally remote, which everybody is. And I think, Sid, that you are basically at the apex of that world. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you run the largest, at least by number of people, intentionally remote company that exists, at least in the tech world. Is that we, fair? We, we think so, although WordPress is also pretty significant. Fair yeah. enough. And, I, but, but also in terms of thought leadership, you've published the most, made all your documents public, so that everyone can understand actually how you operate. And it's clear from those published documents just how much care and thought you've put into the act of running a remote company. So you don't have to respond to that. That's just a compliment. With that, let's dive into um, your view of what the most important things are. And I think um, where I'd love to start is, um, Sid, if you can just sort of by way of background, tell us why it is, you know, basically your founding story. Why did you choose to go remote, all remote in the first place? And what have been the benefits of that decision? We'll get into the cons later, but first, what were the benefits? Yeah, so uh, the first employee was uh, in Serbia. I was in the Netherlands and Dimitri was in the Ukraine. So that's how we started off being remote, just because we're in different countries. Um, I hired a couple of people in the Netherlands. Uh, they came to my house. I had two desks in a room. And then uh, day four, they stopped showing up. Uh, it was kind of a pattern. 
And it, it's never, it was never explicit. It's just, I invited them for their first day on Monday and they showed up the next day and the next day. And then they didn't show up day four. Um, and I was a bit puzzled. Like they didn't say, they didn't ask, I, but they showed up on chat. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, whatever. And uh, we, so they kept working. They kept not, working. Not your house. Just didn't ring the bell at my house. And kind of makes sense because it was a, commute for them. Uh, why do that if the whole rest of the team isn't at my house? And after three days, we were mostly sitting beside each other, uh, looking at our laptops anyway. Um, the next phase was Y Combinator. We were all in the house together. I sometimes jokingly say we were we're now stringent on all remote because we lived together for three months in a way too small house. But uh, <laughs> It's, uh, it's one of those experiences that are really great in hindsight. Um, and uh, they told us like, look, not a lot of startups are successful remote, people try it, but it seems to work for engineering, but not anything else. And we're like, okay, we'll heed to that advice. So we got an office on Ethan Howard in San Francisco and uh, put, uh, put seven or eight desks in there. And uh, first person showed up, Hayden, he was already working at GitLab for a while. And same there. Day four, he doesn't show. Again, like, he didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. We didn't agree on that. It's just, it wasn't part of our culture. And it was, for him, it was like, why travel all the way from Alameda to SF when all you're doing is you sit next to Sid who's talking to his camera all day. So, again, it wasn't needed. And uh, then we had a ton of execs that came in and said, oh, I remember our sales leader was like, ah. Oh, I don't think this is going to work. I think it, we have to be co-located. I'm like, great, we got this lease on this office. We're paying a ton of money, so feel free. But he lived in Sacramento, so he was his. He saved four hours a day of commuting. So like, it was kind of tempting for him to also embrace it. And then uh, I think the last barrier was our SDRs, our sales development representatives. People, uh, most of the people, pretty at the start of their career. I was like, ah, these people need kind of the vibe of, of being in an office in the high fives and didn't turn out that way. We had we hired great people. Many of them were in Utah. They did great. And you could be enthusiastic over Zoom and in Slack and celebrate each other. You, it's actually convenient that you have silence around you if you're talking with a, a customer. So time and time again, we weren't against it, but it just didn't happen. And at a certain point, we said, okay, we... We better make sure to embrace this. And the hardest point was our Series B fundraise, uh, where we really had to kind of make a case that this could work and could scale. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Wow. And then I'd like to dive. Well, actually, we said we're going to talk about the benefits and, and the cons. So what? Ha that's how it's all got started. But now, in hindsight, what are the benefits of that decision? I think the by far the biggest benefit has been. Uh, the ability to hire great people. It's been great for our talent brand. Like we're a proponent of all remote work. Uh, we got a lot of attention because of that. Plus we can hire people in almost everywhere in the world. So a lot of people, if people notice us and they like what they see, they, they're very likely to be able to join the company if they meet the requirements. So um, the, in the end, a company is a collection of people uh, and uh, we were able to hire better people. I think that's the, the top thing that improved. Apart from that, it's also like a whole lot less 
distraction. Last year, we tripled the company from 400 to 1,200 people. Imagine trying to have to like move offices twice a year or something. It'd be a big distraction. Offices and, and facilities management is a huge expense and risk. And also, because we have people all around the world, not everyone is in uh, metro areas with super expensive uh, salaries. I can tell you that that is uh, very enticing uh, right now because we have a massive lease that uh, is is going unused. So um, having everyone at home makes a lot of sense. It would be great to hear from you, Darren. Head a remote for a a thousand plus remote org. That's a pretty serious job. It'd be great to hear a bit about what that entails and and, uh, learn a bit more from you. Yeah, thanks so much. It uh, has evolved quite a bit since I joined. When I joined the company, I was working for the CMO and uh, it was basically to tell our remote story to the world. The media knew about the DevOps side of GitLab, but not so much that we're pioneering the future of work. And so I methodically started building out the all remote section of our handbook, which now spans over 40 guides. And it talks about everything that we do remotely from asynchronous to meetings, to hiring, compensation, the whole gamut. And we're building that out and iterating on that all the time. Uh, but in the process of doing that, it became really useful for the people group. So I'm helping with onboarding, making sure that our onboarding is really prescriptive and articulate. You got to remember, a lot of people are joining the company, company from a co-located space. So acclimating to all remote can be difficult or jarring. And a lot of it takes reinforcement. And so I'm working with, with that group and building that out. And then more recently, working with learning and development formalizing what manager training looks like to make sure all of our managers know how to work remotely and they work remote first and they have a bias towards asynchronous. All of these things that are really, really important to reinforce company-wide for this remote thing to thrive. Awesome. Thanks, Darren. And then coming back to Sid. So Sid, we were, you talked about the the benefits you can hire, you know, great people elsewhere that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. Um, And this is actually a fear that people have. People fear that will they actually be able to hire great people outside of the Bay Area? Because they're not really sure that those great people exist outside of the Bay Area. You actually know. And, and you may say, well, we can hire great engineers outside. But what about business development? What about customer service? What about marketing? Well, those leadership. Are, exactly. So can you please, keep knowing that people have that fear, how would you address that? Yeah. Um, it is not equally distributed, especially the later in careers you get. If you want someone who has run uh, a technology startup that has gone public, you're going to end up in the Bay Area a lot of times. And typically, go-to-market efforts are located close to the customers. The US is the biggest software market in the world by far. So. If you're going to look at sales and marketing talent, you're going to very likely end up in the metro areas of the U.S. and very likely just on the West Coast and East Coast. Um, So it is tougher to get diversity there. And our executive team is a reflection of that, where we have two thirds in the Bay Area and then a person in Mountain Time and a person in Ireland. But uh, there's less diversity there. Uh, by the way, being remote makes it much easier to hire because everyone in the Bay Area is tired of their commute. And there are some people from the Bay Area that want to move, for example, to be close to uh, the rest of their family, to their parents. And 
if your truly remote company where the executive team is truly remote, you have a very unique proposition to them. Yeah, absolutely. And then now let's dive in the other direction, Sid. We're talking about the benefits and hiring great people and allowing them to live wherever they want to live. That's clear, amazing benefit, especially with the fangs, you know, throw, using cash as a war chest to make it basically impossible to hire good talent in the Bay Area for a, a small startup that can't pay millions of dollars. And, um, but what about the con? What, what, let's be honest with people that if you go down this road, you will experience this negative and it's unavoidable. And what is that? When we got started, it was that uh, investors were skeptics. I think that's no longer the case there. They're on the plus side. Um, there's the fallacy that you can do hybrid. Hybrid is super hard, so don't do that. Then I think there's two things left. You got to embrace asynchronous communication. We make every process change at GitLab through a change in our handbook. That is super hard to enforce. Every single day, I have to keep reinforcing that throughout the organization. It's better, but it's, it's an unnatural motion. Ace, naturally, communication descends into meetings and synchronous communication. So you have to, you have to keep reinforcing that. The other thing is you got to take care of informal communication. You need to formally organize that. If you're remote, it's super effective. Everyone has experienced that. Every company is more productive remote, especially if you don't do it in the middle of a pandemic where people are super distracted. Um, but you need to take care of building those bonds. Before, you had facility managers that took care of your office space, and then there it magically happened. It wasn't perfect. People knew the people on the same floor and but not on the floor below. You can do way better with remote, but you need to organize it. It's not something that comes for free. You need to do those social calls. You need to, um, yeah, be a bit maybe parental about that. You, so th this is the really interesting part. Like, how exactly do you do that? Can you go into detail about how you, how you sure. organize the social side? Yeah, if you Google GitLab informal communication, you'll find more than 15 examples of how we do that. But a very effective one is uh, coffee chats. At GitLab, when you join, we make you do 10 coffee chats. And afterwards, we make you do one a week where you get paired with a random, not a random person, a very special person, but you, the match is made at random. And um, you have 25 minutes. You can spend it however you want. You can talk about work. You can talk, talk about a life, of, uh, life outside of work, but you're going to meet with that person. And if you and like is it, it ran, you, is it random in the whole company? Like one out of the whole thousands? company. Wow. Because okay. We're a functionally organized company. So the first thing that will break down at GitLab is silos in the function. So very yeah. important, all our informal communication initiatives, wherever we can, we make them multi-function. Multi mm -hmm. There's then, also, go ahead, Matt. I was going to ask, um, and we've, you've seen that list. It's a fantastic list. And we're going to link all these, these docs as well. Um, so ever, all viewers will be able to see this. But I'm curious to know, now that you have so much experience with creating connection on a tactical level between team members, what conclusions are you coming to about the theory of what creates connection among humans? So on a broad base level, what is it? Is it that we do projects together? Is that we, you know, obviously it doesn't, you're saying it's not that I physically see you or I physically, you know, say hello to you and goodbye to you in a physical space. It's something else. What is it theoretically that's creating connection among humans? Is it 
big question, but I think the, it's best if they reinforce one, in, one each other. Some of the most lasting bonds I made were doing Y Combinator. Some of the most lasting bonds people have is when they went through a period of great stress, like in the military. So I think that work and social can reinforce each other. But it's important that you have both types of conversations. That you have the work conversation and that you have get to know the person behind it. The better we know the person behind the work, the more sympathy we'll, we'll feel. Mm-hmm. So for example, we every week we do uh, team socials where we just 50 minutes, it's not going to be about the work, it's just about getting to know each other on a different level. And some people have a drink with it. It's, it's something you can do, but with remote, there's less, the time is so efficient and organized. When we're out of points in a meeting, we end the meeting right there and then, even if it's one for it in. Mm-hmm. So it's important to explicitly allot time to these social things. And like, it's weird to have a Google Calendar appointment for an informal chat because what it works and because it's there, it happens and nothing is planned over it. Are these mandatory, the, these social events? The, the first 10 uh, coffee chats are mandatory part of onboarding mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the group conversations. I don't think they're mandatory. No meetings at GitLab are mandatory, but I, mm-hmm. I think they're highly attended. Got it. And then Sid, you, as one of the 15, you mentioned something called juice box chats. Um, yeah. Well, Darren is, is the hard? inventor, I, as far as I know. So Darren, you might want to elaborate on that. Yeah. So that spawned out of lots of Get, uh, GitLab team members have kids at home now during the pandemic. And we have a parenting channel where we converse about, hey, how do you become a homeschool teacher, essentially? And so we have parents helping each other out. And it kind of collectively dawned on us that if we have spare blocks of time in our calendar, we all have Zoom cameras, we all have kids running around that want to be with other kids, let's just turn our cameras on. So we started this calendar where the parents can sync up, they open up their Zoom cams, they invite their kids together, they can sing, dance, show off toys. So now you have kids that are in isolation, but they're actually getting cultural exploration across six continents, which they probably couldn't even get if they were in school. And so... Juicebox Chats is the kids' version of the coffee chat. Fantastic. I love That's it. Awesome. So let's, let's, then, let's zoom out a second and, um, and, and come to a sort of a, a higher level overall because, um, Sid, about a month ago, you put out a, a tweet thread which basically called the alarm to the world. Hey, something really bad is about to happen and I'm going to be the first to warn you. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think you're the one ringing this bell the loudest. So, so let's dig into it. And that is the danger of hybrid. That sort of the world has now been forced into remote, but everyone's eager to get back, but they won't really be allowed to. So they're going to go back in a hybrid version and they're all going to have, your prediction is they're all going to have really bad experiences with that. And they're going to blame it on remote, but actually the blame will be on the hybrid. And exactly right. And what's, what's going to happen? What happened is, all the companies went remote and not just re- we're going to go remote. They went remote unplanned during a global pandemic. There were kids at home, parents were in danger. It was a miserable time. Every single company I've seen, productivity increased. Everyone was like, I can't believe it, but we're getting more done. It was crazy. Somehow, all the CEOs of these companies are deciding 
this was great, but we're going to get back to the office. And I have no clue why. Is it a sunk cost fallacy because of the lease? Is it because they like the, the, what it affords them? The feeling of walking into the, the building they built, the people that work for them? I don't think they're that vain. Most people are pretty, pretty, pretty rational, but I don't get it. So the only conclusion I can come to is that they think they need more informal communication. And I bet they do. I bet they didn't organize the informal communication. And they should. But the tactic they are choosing of reopening their office is the wrong one. For a very long time, people will not go back into the office. Not all of them. Some people will, some people won't. There's people moving places now. There's people who are more at risk of the coronavirus that have to stay home. So they will open up the office, but not everyone will be there. And then they're going to get two work streams, the people that go back to the old way of working and the people that will have the new way of working. And if the leadership is present at the office, it's clear which style is going to give you more information and more career opportunities. Those people at the office will have an advantage. Yeah. And the people remote will feel left out. And the good, the most talented people and the most ambitious people will leave. They will leave for all remote companies. So this is going to be great for GitLab. But I want to warn the world because we're not hiring a couple of million people. So uh, we're going to do fine anyway. But please, your best remote people are going to leave. The rest of them are going to feel disenfranchised. And it's going to be a failure. And you're going to blame it on remote while the real problem is hybrid. So what do you say to CEOs who like said... You know, I kind of love remote. I'm maybe a in, more introverted CEO. I actually like working through Zoom. But I have the opposite problem where contingent of my company are telling me they will quit if we don't go back to the office. Um, maybe we just haven't organized the remote activities well enough, the social activities. Or maybe because of the way the GitLab is founded and it's always been remote, Like maybe you actually optimize for people who really like being remote. And, you, and it's just like a fundamental human characteristic and you can't change that. Yeah. When you don't have data, you use anecdotes. I have a very loving social wife. Her name is Karen and she works at HackerOne, a very promising startup. And she was like, remote for me, never. Um, so they have a great office culture at HackerOne. I caught up with her uh, recently, like, hey, you feel excited about the office opening back up? And he says, no, I don't care. It doesn't have to open back up. I'm like, what changed? You were so adamant, like, I'm never going to work all remote. It's like, yeah, but I can go now and get boba tea with my colleagues. So every, every day we feel like it, we do that. Plus we do Wednesdays off because we're more effective anyway and I get to meet up with people. It's about organizing the informal communication. Your people are hurting because you didn't organize that. People are not just work, 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 business, business, business. You're employing humans. They need that informal communication. And they're quitting if you don't give it to them. But you don't have to open up the office to do that. Opening mm. up the office will put their health at risk. Don't mm. do that. Organize yeah. the informal communication. This is such an important point. Um, again, with the CEOs that I'm talking to, they all do want to go back in some way. And the biggest thing that they're 
pointing out to me is that their executive team meetings are now starting to become dysfunctional um, because the, the, and they're making the assumption again, that you're saying that the social bond is now starting to weaken after three months. And, you know, Alex, you have people directly saying that they need to get back in human contact. And that's a little stronger than most because you've created such a in-person family bond at Clearbit. But let's get very tactical now. The, The social, the 15 suggestions you have were sort of company level. Let's now talk team level, which likely are no different at all. But two, the CEOs out there who say, my executive team is fraying. What would you have them do first? The very first thing you'd have them do. Okay, I don't have a lot of suggestions, but I still have to download pictures from this drone because I was on holiday last week and we had a pool. And I heard one of my reports say, hey, I I really miss having a pool and our kid misses it. So I invited them over. We had a great day. And this drone might have chopped a few flowers of our Airbnb, but this is going to be public. Sorry about that. really few. Um, we had a great time. So that's, that's cool. Like you don't have to have an office to, to have that hanging out time together. In fact, the office is not super conducive because that's the place for business. Like don't, don't do it where there's business. And as executives, we do offsites every quarter. They're great. And we can't wait until they're in person again, because it's not, it's not the same being remote, but you don't need to do that every day. You don't need to to hang out together every day. And actually you should, should make the hanging out a bit better because I bet my hanging out by the pool was a bit better than we could have had at the office. And that's from you to your team. I'm talking about from your team to each other. If you, yeah. and you may it's, never experience it's it. This, it's the same thing. We, we facilitate pizza parties for our, for our people to meet up together. We do the weekly hangouts where like this, you can talk about you can gossip about work. You can do anything as long as you don't talk about the, the, the sprint in progress. Mm. Perfect. Well, and then, then let's, yeah, I was going to bring it back to you, Alex. Then yeah. let's come back to you because I think this debate right here, if Sid can convince Alex right now to stay all remote, something really has happened because you're never going to get a live. I mean, Alex, you are the poster child for you want to go back. I, I personally, yeah, I want I want to go back, but every month that I'm remote, uh, I'm a little bit more obliged to actually stay fully remote because I think we're really proving to ourselves that it's possible. Um, it's maybe like there's investors who are skeptical of of the, of the of the thing initially with GitLab, but over time, you know, when you actually show that the company's working and the, the, you know things yeah, are happening, the investors, they went from I don't like this promise you, you'll change it as soon as it stops working. I now like, hey, Sid, what do you think about me starting a fund? Uh, because we found that your costs are way lower. Plus, you have like 88% year-over-year retention. Plus, you get better talent than any company we know. So we think this remote thing is just a way to make companies work. In <laughs> place. So yeah. yeah. You can do it, but allow time. Allow time for it. You're you're gaining so much efficiency by being remote. Invest some of that back into explicitly making time for those that informal communication. And, and Alex, you're probably not taking full advantage of remote. You're simply working mm. at home in the home that you have because it is convenient for your co-location. But imagine if that doesn't have to exist. Now, if the entire world, you could just spin the globe and say, where do I want to be? Where do I want, what do I want my life to look like? 
Now you're actually taking advantage of remote. It's not, it's not very fun to just work from home in a very expensive place where you can see the office. Yeah. You have to do life differently to actually fully take advantage of remote. That is a great point. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we did really well was we did our Q, uh, Q1 planning and Q2 planning all remote. And um, we had like a remote conference almost. And I'm wondering if th- this is the way that you run things as well. Do you run events like every now and again? Maybe your planning week is kind of like a conference that's completely remote. Yeah, we did a, a virtual contribute. So we come together as the whole company once a year in a beautiful location. Um, and we can do that. So we did it virtually. Uh, it was only a single day. It was really fun. We did a ton of breakout groups. We kind of were speed dating as in like meeting people for five minutes. Um, so that was really fun. Our planning, uh, a lot of that is is the normally we do it at an offsite. We have dinner together. We there's there's time to hang out. We did an escape room last time, you know, the drill. This time we're like, okay, well, we're gonna do half days because a full day on behind the camera is too much. But we get we got as as much done as as otherwise, just having a Google Doc on the side and everything else. We got the same stuff done, but we we didn't explicitly make time for the softer things. We should have done the like, let's give each other feedback in a group and things like that. And we could have done that and we didn't. So even even we are sometimes not good at um, being formal about the informal communication, but we're, we're getting better. Awesome. So let me, I, I'm still going to come back to seeing if we can convince Alex to commit to going all remote by the end of this call, but let's, uh, let's go through some of the, the other fears that, that exist out there, which again, you addressed in this tweet thread. And so the next one is um, collaboration. I've heard this a lot. People are like, you know, creative work, it just needs to be done in person. And that's just, you know, product teams need to be together. And um, so, but you address that very clearly, where shared Google Docs are actually more effective than physical whiteboards. Can you please elaborate on that a little bit more, Sid? Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for asking. So I think whiteboards are great for two things. They're great for drawing arrows to connect items. It's harder in a Google Doc. And they're great for grouping stuff with circles. That's much harder in a doc. However, with a Google Doc, you have 15 advantages compared to that. Everyone can write, not just a mostly senior person who's in front of the room with the marker. Multiple people can write at the same time. We had a sales training and it went twice as fast. Why? Because the person with the marker was in the bottleneck. When they said, everyone put down an idea, boom, you had 15 cursors at the same time, you had 15 ideas. You can see in real time where everyone is looking. If I have a room full of people, I don't know where they're looking on the whiteboard. Here I can see the cursor. Everyone can make suggestions. You can make kind of comments that are like time-stamped. Like you can, you can see who did what at what time. In a whiteboard, you don't see that. You can change the hierarchy with indentation, change it back and forth. You can copy-paste stuff. You don't run out of space. It doesn't need to be deleted after the meeting. It can be iterated on prior to the meeting. Like you can prep and already have an outline there. It's the agenda transforms into the notes during the meeting. Like up front, it's the agenda, and then you add to it. 
it's much more readable than the handwriting sometimes is. You can use URLs. You can use the internet. We, we invented hypertext. It's great. You can dump a URL in the Google Doc. I, I challenge you to go click a whiteboard. It doesn't do anything. You can add screenshots. You can embed stuff. And that Google Doc becomes an artifact that can be shared much more easily than... I sometimes went home from stuff and you, you get a big roll of paper with everything you've wrote down. Nothing happens to those, never. And you can share it globally and invite other people. It is far superior. A Google Doc is superior to any whiteboard. No, it's not a match. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. Um, personally, I love writing. But what I find is I get pushback from people in the company. They say, Alex, I don't collaborate through writing. I don't think through writing. I need to talk. I need to some ideas, someone to bounce ideas off. That's and I'm fine. Wondering, That's fine. Like, it, yeah. I think as a remote company, um, you can be synchronous. Some people love talking. It tends to be synchronous. They tend to not set, send WhatsApp voice messages or Twitter voice messages soon. So that can work as long as you're not across multiple time zones. Like, there's a whole difference between all remote in the same time zone and all remote worldwide. And that's a, that's a big jump. And we solved a ton of stuff at GitLab, but we didn't solve time zones. If you want to solve time zones, you need to go asynchronous, and then it's writing instead of talking. So for those people, as long as you keep the same hours, I don't think there's a problem. Like, just, if they like talking more, they go hop on a Zoom call. By the way, yeah. you have some transcript, but write it down. So you actually get some materials produced. Yeah. How do you deal with that, Sid? How do you deal with teams that are globally spread? But is there any element of synchronous, communi synchronous communication that yeah, has to happen? Sure, for sure there is. And uh, naturally, it's hard to keep it into asynchronous communication. But for example, get out of it as soon as it's not functional. So if you go back and forth with a colleague like two times, hop on a call together because that's way more efficient than going back and forth in chat. So we really stimulate to jump to synchronous as soon as the asynchronous uh, becomes tedious. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And then let's keep going again through this Twitter thread that you had and all the points that you're bringing up there. So I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I'll sort of grab what I think are the biggest ones first. And we've already gone through a few of them. But the next is, is that people fear that, and Alex just, just said it. He said, listen, there are a bunch of my people who I love and I want to continue to be with. And they said that they need to go back in person. So if he doesn't give them that option, they're leaving the company. But you say the opposite of that side, which is watch out, Alex, because if you go back in hybrid, the people who now are really productive remotely, they will leave the company for the all remote because they will realize that the path to success is they'll be disadvantaged in a company that's hybrid if they're not in the office. And so the ones who are really productive and, and remote will go to a place that is all remote where they won't be disadvantaged. Can you please elaborate? I mean, maybe I just said it for you. you know, I just, yeah. So but, people need the social bonds. And if you didn't organize informal communication, the past couple of months have been aware on those bonds and people no longer feel connected and they want that connectivity back. They don't want to go back to the office. They want to go back to informal communication with each other so they can restore these bonds. So it's a translation problem of, of had the office stood for informal communication. That's what, that's, the, that's, that's what they need. And if you can provide it in a different way, it will very likely 
work out for the majority of those people based on my sample size of just my wife. Um, and then, yeah, the hybrid thing, it's so tempting. And you see every CEO in the world giving into it. And I think it's going to be a really big problem. I've, I've not seen great hybrid companies. I've seen great remote companies. I've seen great co-located companies. I've not seen a great hybrid company. But we're going to see there's some very smart founders like the founders of Spotify that say, hey, we're no longer going to have uh, conference rooms. It's going to be single person rooms because if you're hopping on a conference, you're going to each dial in individually. So everyone has a cursor, everyone has a webcam, everyone has audio, and the people being remote can see the faces of the people in the meeting. I think that's super smart. So we're going to see of the, if the brightest minds of our generation can pull it off to do hybrid. But I'd say it's a bit of a risk because it's never been done before. Matt, and the other policy yeah. there is there's only two places to work, at home or the office. At GitLab, we'll reimburse you if you need to go to a co-working space or an external office because we know that not every home is amenable to remote. I don't think enough leaders are thinking about that. There are other options other than the two. And many people that, quote unquote, can't wait to get back to the office, as Sid, as Sid said, really, they just can't wait to get out of whatever situation they're in in quarantine, which you can't really fault them for. That's right. That's right. But again, Sid, you pointed out the ways to make people feel um, comfortable with remote by creating that informal communication. But the angle I was going down was that watch out. If you come back to hybrid and you have in the leaders or in the headquarters, and then the leaders do not are not careful about doing what Spotify is doing. And so the, the communications become informal within the office. Relationships get built within the office. People get promoted with who are physically in the office. Then the people who are remote, even though they're allowed to be remote, will start to realize, wait a second, I'm not getting all the information I need. I'm not getting the promotion that I deserve. And therefore, they'll say, this is basically BS. Why am I in this company that isn't valuing me fully? I'm going to go to a place that will value me fully. And so Alex is talking about the fear of losing the people who need to be in person. But you're pointing out where the, where the fears really should be about losing these incredibly productive people who are remote. Exactly. Okay. Is there anything I missed there? Because I don't want... I'm, no, I, it's I think more powerful coming from you than from me. It's, it's spot on. And it's it's and it's gonna it's not gonna take them a long while to figure it out. It's gonna they're gonna be very reluctant to change jobs. So that's a long incubation time. But you don't have to be not invited to a meeting or sorry, I forgot to tell you that we decided it in a hallway conversation. That doesn't have to happen that often, you know. And then it can still take years before they actually leave, but they know really, really fast. Um, and it's hard. I run an old remote company. It's super hard to reinforce working handbook first. It's super hard to reinforce the informal communication. I could not run a hybrid company. Now, there's better leaders out there than me, but I think it's an order of magnitude harder. It's not like, oh, you need to do two things. No, you need to do two things that conflict. I think it's impossible. And you mentioned this before, said so you mentioned that you still at GitLab have to continually reinforce this asynchronous, asynchronous communication, putting it in the manual. So what's, what specifically do you mean by that? What, what's an example of a communication that people do not the way you want them to, and then sure. you have to remind them to do it the correct sure. way? Today, um, one team said, okay, we need a knowledge management tool. 
our handbook is the best knowledge management tool that of any company. I've never seen a more comprehensive knowledge management tool than our handbook. But it's they're not familiar with the tools. It's tedious. So they want something simpler. And I can't blame them. They're right. So it's super hard to reinforce that. And we have a whole section about why wikis are probably not going to scale to be your uh, to be your handbook. Today, a, a leader showed me like the plan, his department, it was these sections organized by that. And he immediately, he shows it and he's like, oh, I'm going to add it to the handbook. It's not how we work. We work handbook first. You make it in the handbook, the proposal in the handbook from the start. But it was harder to do that. It didn't present as well. The graphs are not as nice. It's super, super, super hard. It's not intuitive. We've also signaled recently, hey, we have too many meetings. We start defaulting back to meetings to educate people instead of having meetings to review proposals. Very, very hard. And so sit on that example of your, your, your direct report. Before you wanted him to put it in the handbook first, something that he wanted to show to you to basically get your approval. You wanted him to put it in the handbook first so everybody could see it. And is that so you could get feedback from the entire company and the entire world about it before you even had to make a decision about it? It's, it's not about me versus other people. It's about, he put it in a, a sheet, uh, a Google sheet, instead of in the handbook. That means it's disconnected from everything else that's happening in that department. And it means that he didn't, he didn't think through everything that was going on in the department. Now, he's the leader of the department, so he probably thought through it. But it also means I look at their handbook and it's hopelessly out of date. Because guess mm. what? After he's taking the decision, how much motivation is there going to be to add it to the handbook? There's not. So the handbook becomes the documentation place. Oh, yeah, I'll document it later. Like If you want to get in trouble at GitLab, tell, tell me, refer to the handbook as documentation. Because... It's not documentation. It is what we do. And otherwise, every single company I've known outside of GitLab, the handbook is out of date and no one, no one looks there. So the only way to drive it is to work handbook first. Who's so in bit, charge of updating it? Is it yes. each team is in charge of updating their own section? Yes. At well, each well, page, we'll have a list of maintainers. And anybody can make a proposal, but those people kind of approve the proposals. But Sid, what you're saying is radical. You're saying, I want your thoughts to be in the handbook. I want when you're just conceiving a draft idea, I want that to be in the handbook. Yes, because we know that approving, like if it's not in the handbook from the start, it will not, it sometimes doesn't get there and it will always get there too late. And it's, it's like a shared brain for your company. It's kind of like yes. a collective brain. Yes. Interesting. And we make software, so we know how that runs. Humans are like the best interpreters in the world. You can just give them English prose and they'll be able to do that. They're even smarter. They sometimes don't listen to the prose and do something else. And 99% of the time, that's great. So it's even better. So Sid, sparks two thoughts. One is you're now talking about truly radical transparency. And because you're, you, this is pre-decision, you are allowing the entire company and the child world to see what's going on. What the we allow you to make suggestions. There's 5,000 pages of how we work and you can edit every one of them and send me a proposal to change it. Amazing. We are about, everyone can contribute to are software there, with GitLab, to GitLab the software and to GitLab the company. Are there any thoughts that are not allowed in the manual? 
Uh, we have a lots of things. We have 17 things that can be public. We have a policy of no politics at work. There's tons of stuff you can put in the handbook. Great. So, so compens- compensation, performance, these are things that you're not transparent about. Is that right? I think that's, we're very transparent about how, what our compensation philosophy is. Mm-hmm. If you go to any of our job to uh, of our job families, you can see exactly what the ranges are. We will reward you at. However, you cannot find out what Darren earns because we don't want you, if you're in GitLab, to be obsessed with whether Git, Darren got a great performance review or a bad performance review. That's between Darren and his manager. Right. That's none of your business because we want negative convert, negative feedback to happen in the smallest possible audience mm-hmm. and to for the manager to be able to give critical feedback without worrying that it will affect the stature of that person within the team. Yeah, that it will shame him. Shame, yeah. Well, it's just, look, if it's, it's tough enough receiving negative feedback, having all your peers also take notice of that doesn't improve, doesn't, doesn't set you up for success in overcoming it. Yeah, exactly. Because suddenly all the rest of the people are, yeah, yeah, he's really doing that bad. They're just parroting the manager. It's a good segue. Can I can I segue into compensation? Because uh, we're we're almost on time now, and I and we're I wanna, coming back to you, Alex. By the way, <laughs> I want to fit this. Can't escape that. <laughs> I want I want to fit this in. So CEOs are asking themselves: like, Do we do geo-adjusted salaries or not? And I wonder what your answer is to that, and and how you do salary internally. Well, you do do geo-adjusted salaries. Yes. So the for question us, is why? For more than for 100 plus job families, for more than 200 regions in the world, you can find out what you're going to earn. We do adjust per region. And I think the vast majority of companies will do this because it makes sense. You don't want to pay to cost of living. You don't want to give everyone exactly the same. You want to pay market rate. The market is the best mechanism for determining what someone will earn. If you pay on the top end of the market, you will find that all your hires happen in low-cost regions and they will never leave even if they are dissatisfied with the company. Plus, you could have hired twice as many people and get twice as much stuff done. If you pay at the bottom of the market, you also find only people in low-cost regions, but that's another story. And tactically, how do you determine what the market is? Do you buy salary data? Yeah, you buy salary data and you adjust that if a lot of people decline your offers or if a lot, if people are leaving because they can earn more someplace else. And that's by city, by state, by country? Region, mostly in a lot of cities. Mm-hmm. All right, so now let's come back to this. And, and Alex, maybe I should ask your permission. Are you willing for me to put you on the hot seat here? Well, unfortunately, I just can't make <laughs> the unilateral decisions like that. I would think I would have a, a revolt. But if anything, this conversation has proven to me is that, yes, it, it is possible to run a remote company and solve the loneliness problem, which is, I think, for me, the, the, the biggest problem with remote. And, uh, and it's, it's great to see that there are some tactical things that you can do to solve that problem. So, so maybe with that, then maybe we should wrap up, Sid, with asking you what did what should we have asked you that we didn't? What is the best way to find all these tactical ways and to to have a conversation with my team? And the answer to that is you go 
and you Google GitLab ebook and you find our remote ebook with 50 pages of really the condensed information that uh, that we're trying to that we think is essential to taking care of creating connection and not having this loneliness while we are working remote. Fantastic. And then and Darren, do you want to have do you have anything else to add to wrap up? I just think it's great that we're having this conversation. Um, I feel like uh, the pandemic is unfortunate, but one of the effects of it is that it's accelerated the global embrace of remote by at least 10 years, and it has democratized the conversation around it. I think it's huge for inclusivity. People now can go into a job interview and just ask, what's your stance on workplace flexibility? What does remote look like? Is it just allowed? Is it supported? What does that look like? That's transformational for working parents, for caregivers, for military spouses, for people that have been ostracized, it's huge. It opens up opportunity in a huge way. So I think the second and third order effects of this are going to be way, way more impactful for, for generations to come. Agreed. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, and then one little tiny thing before we thank you and wrap up is people are now going to go on droves and, and look at the remote handbook, but they are going to have questions. And what's the most effective way for them to get those questions answered? Um, and and who who should they reach out to and how should they reach out? And don't make any commitments that you you know aren't doing already. Darren, you want to take that on? Yeah, I guess. Uh, you can reach out to us, uh, the GitLab Twitter handle, or you can follow me, Darren Murph, on LinkedIn or Twitter. And I'll do the best I can. The inbounds have been completely manic since COVID began, but uh, I'm rowing as hard as I can. So I want to I wanna hear the questions. It helps make our handbook better. Awesome. Fantastic. Guys, that was incredible. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Darren. Great. Awesome.